Today's episode is made possible by Gallery 101, a remarkable art gallery nestled in the heart of Basalt, Colorado. Gallery 101 is co-owned by the talented twin artists Ingrid D. Magidson and Sybil Hill Carter, who together form a dynamic and influenced female force in the art world. Their extraordinary artwork has graced galleries across the nation. To explore their captivating creations and learn more about Ingrid and Sybil's artistic journey, visit their website at www.gallery101basalt.com. Again, that's www.gallery101basalt.com. Now let's get back to the podcast. Hi, Irina. Hi, Bella. I am so excited because today I have someone really special to me. Yeah. My cousin, Ariel, and her husband, Hamam. It's going to be an important conversation today, and we are so happy you guys are here because uh, we're going to be talking today about their, their story, but also her mom is uh, originally from Palestine, and her mom is married Ariel, who is an American Jewish woman. So I think there is a beautiful story there, and uh, we're just so grateful, guys, that you. That, you, that you decided to come in and talk about everything that's happening there, the situation there, your take. And I think it's always interesting to hear from somebody who is from that country, especially when the country is on the news heavily, like like Palestine. Um, so welcome to Moments That Define Us. Welcome. Thank, Thank you. you. We're very excited to yeah, do this. We are. So you guys ready? Yeah. Okay. Ask away. Yeah. So mom you grew up in Palestine um what was it like growing up there well I grew up in Gaza City um like in my early childhood I witnessed like the military occupation firsthand um but as I got older you know the peace process with like Oslo and stuff like that kind of kicked in in 1995 that's when like I was awake uh as a generation like we were awake at like I was uh, in 1995 when Yasser Arafat came back to Gaza is when I immediately had this sense of pride and celebration and, you know, of movement that, hey, we finally have some sort of a way to define us as Palestinians and we can have an identity. And it was like pretty evident in the atmosphere Things were going really nicely up until the year 2000. My dad was the largest contractor uh, in the Gaza Strip. Mm -hmm. So we built, my dad built everything important, almost everything important in, in Gaza. Between my dad, my uncle, and maybe a few other contractors, we basically built the whole country. Wow. Uh, until he left Gaza in 2005, 2007. Um, Where did he, he go? Had, he went to Dubai. Because okay. when you're when you're like a major contractor, like imagine like the biggest contractor in the U.S. right now, and U.S. goes to war. The second intifada erupts. The moment the second intifada erupts, um, we had 27 projects that are ongoing construction. And basically, you have this massive turmoil across and a revolt It's basically a revolution that kind of like never ended for us. Mm -hmm. So basically, imagine the risk with construction is very 
you know, is very high in normal, normal baseline U.S., you know, California. It's it's risky business and add war on top of that. Um, basically, he had to shut down. He had to, like, leave, uh, you know, shut, because everything was shut down. El Shifa Hospital. My dad built the old building and half of the new building, the, the one you see on the cameras. Mm-hmm. Uh, and basically... There the blockade that started in 2007, that's when I left Gaza. Um, 2006 is when I left Gaza. The blockade kind of kind of had started at the time. It took me like three months to leave to go to school because I went to the American University in Cairo. Uh, and the summer I was supposed to have like I was supposed to go, to Egypt um, was the year Hamas took the first soldier as captive or like prisoner or hostage. They took the first, uh, they attacked like a unit, the surveillance unit, and they took a, a soldier. And ever since they did that, they closed all the borders, they closed all the stuff, they, they implemented a total siege around Gaza. And for three months, I started going right after I graduated high school. I was accepted already in the American University for Construction Engineering. And I basically would go every night, sleep at the Rafa border, mm-hmm. wait until they open. They would let out one or two buses, and then they would shut it down. And it took me the full three months. I started you know, right at around the beginning of June, started leaving. And I was only able to leave in August 25th, 20, 2006. Wow. And I did not return home. The The siege and the blockade was so bad that none of, none of us who left at the time were able to go see our family. So I'm living five hours away from where I li- where my family is, mm-hmm. did not see them <laughs> until, and I'm five five hours away, and I didn't. I left home 2006, did not see anybody until 2010, because kids were going back, and if they get stuck, you know, like they would open it for one or two days, and you get stuck behind the border, and you you lose. You basically are is stuck in Gaza for another year, year and a half, two years. So you can't really transfer credits, and you're you can basically a lot of people, a lot of students did not complete their school because mm-hmm. they were got caught behind the borders. So I didn't go back until the Turkish flotilla broke the siege on Gaza in 2010. And there was a, um, so I went down actually in Gaza to terminate the contract for, and I was just like a senior engineering, construction management, construction engineering student. And my task was to shut down my dad's company and negotiate like the, the termination of the contract with the Saudis. Um, and you know, when you're, <laughs> the Saudis were like donated the, the, the 
um, special surgery hospital building in, in El Shifa Hospital, which is right now under siege and nobody can get out and there's babies and there's a whole fiasco there. Uh, but my dad put in the foundation. We've like, I, like I like my I like I stood outside, you know, like collecting the concrete trucks and making sure that we're pouring everything correctly, doing the testing on all the concrete. Um, but that was when I was in high school. But I when I came back four years later, I was basically, you know, dismantling all the formwork, all the woodwork that is used to pour the third or fourth floor, negotiated the, like I was, we were basically forced into terminating the contract. We had no say, um, dealing with that and dealing with shutting down the entire company. So you were at the university in Cairo, which is in Egypt, right? Yeah. And so then you go back, you have to close your dad's company and all of that. And then and then what, when did you leave to United States? What was it, 2000 and what? I spent what? 40 days. So I spent 40 days there. And then I, and then I go back uh, to Egypt to finish my school because it's a five-year program. It's not a four-year program. I finished one more year of school. Um, and during during the time there was the Egyptian revolution, which was very nice. It was a very nice time, very hopeful times, mm. very like inspiring times. But after the revolution ended, I went back home. I the revolution, I was planning on getting a job in Egypt and kind of like sticking around there because it's so bleak in Gaza. And the the people I left in 2006, after seeing them through multiple wars basically a Hamas takeover of the whole area and it's just the the soul of the city has changed right it's like the people are different everybody's different everybody I knew all my friends are in the diaspora right now mm -hmm. everybody I grew up with had left and gone so I went back in 2011 and I worked for my uncle's construction company, and I was building the Turkish-Palestinian Friendship Hospital as a, an engineer on the ground. Like um, the whole cancer treatment area that was bombed, uh, I was basically in charge of like half of that hospital, which is massive, um, as an engineer. Um, put my heart in my, I learned everything I know about construction uh, when it when it comes to the term like uh, you know concrete and stuff like that, like actual like you know hands on the ground day in day out with the guys there at the at that hospital. Mm -hmm. uh, I hope it's still standing. I don't know. Like uh, the last time I saw something, it was like it was bombed. Um, I put in so much effort into that. So seeing uh, and that. Then... Okay, go ahead. Sorry, finish. Uh, and then during, and the, at the time there was still siege. So the hospital construction kind of stopped for a little bit because it was, um, the siege was so intense that we couldn't get the building materials in. They were not approved. Uh, and the Turkish government was trying really hard to coordinate all this stuff. Um, but there was a pause 
in the construction and I called my dad. I said, hey, I'm staying at home. You're in Dubai. How is like he's trying to rebuild his own empire again. So imagine like being at the top and then falling down and then going to Dubai and starting and wanting to start it all back up again. Mm -hmm. And I basically I said, don't you need help? Can you get me there? And I uh, and he said, I will try. I've been trying. I want to I'll keep trying, trying, trying. And then finally, in 2012, he gets me, you know, a visa to visit him for three months. Mm -hmm. I go to Dubai. I find a job like I had like eight offers. Right. <laughs> it's like it's insane. Just like uh, I took one. I picked one that I liked and I said, OK, I'll do this one. But my visa never came through my like my work visa never I was never approved so I had to leave and on the way back from Dubai I went to Egypt to spend four or five days absolutely upset just waiting because I had to leave the the UAE my dad called me and he said you got rejected a third time for a work visa it's like okay I'll just go home my dad was pretty devastated at the time and on in Sinai, as I'm going back home, I figured out that nobody can contact my dad, and he passed away. Terrible your dad, news. Your dad passed away while you are going from, were you trying to get from Egypt back to Gaza? To Gaza, yeah. And he... I'm in the desert. I can't do anything. I'm in a, I'm in a taxi with other people, like, you know, like you hire... It's a five-hour ride. You hot, you split it with someone, and you can't really turn back. What are you gonna do? What? I can't really. I don't have. If I wanted to go buy a ticket to go back to Dubai and help, I can't. Um, feeling absolutely useless. I'm in a car in the middle of the desert, so far away from him. How did you get the news? So you you're driving back, and and how did you get the news? I tried calling him to tell him that I am on the road. Mm -hmm. like, you know, I've left, you know, I'm on my way. Um, I tried calling him, he didn't answer. I called my mom. My mom was crying. She was like, we've been trying to call your dad all morning. He was staying in Abu Dhabi for the night. And, you know, he's not picking up. He's not picking up. He's not picking up. Um, yeah, I, mean, I tried calling, I tried calling, and I had this feeling that he's gone. He's not, he's not with us anymore. I went home. First thing I did, I wake up my brother. I tell him very calmly, there's going to be a lot of people coming over right now to sit, to give their condolences. Yeah. I was, uh, I was met with thousands and thousands and thousands of people. And he was like the biggest contractor in town. Mm. You know, a lot of people loved him. And then I decided to start my own business and kind of like recreate my dad's legacy. Thing. Yeah. Legacy. And it turns out like the more I stayed around, the more problems I started getting into with like, you know, my dad's old stuff. So I was like, I can't really build anything if I'm always being attacked and my personal safety is in danger. Were you being attacked by the israeli government or just the no the, the israelis left gaza in 2005 it was just all besieged you're like okay. completely closed off 
and I filled in my first bid. And, you know, like as a contractor, I filled in my first bid, you know, for a public park in Jabalia. Uh, Jabalia is very famous now. It was a public park on the beach. And I filled in my bid and I won the bid. I was the lowest bid by $250. I won the <laughs> bid. Awesome. I am literally like 24 years, like 24, 25 years old. Uh, and it was a 380,000 euro project, which is equivalent to... It was 250,000 euros, 380,000 American dollars at the time. And it was a big project for me. And all of a sudden, all these weird people start coming up to me and saying, you know, um, we, want to, we want you to support us and give us money like, your, like, you know, because your dad helped and supported and did all these things. And I'm like, I'm not going to do that. Like, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to engage. I'm not going to. Um, and it, it's been happening ever since I shut down the company. A lot of people turn sour. When you have when you have people under siege for such a long time, things are not as negotiable. Things are not as. When you have a mindset like me, I drink alcohol. I drink. I live this lifestyle and they, they look at this lifestyle as, you know, not us, not one of us. And mm -hmm. that's, it can be hard. Cause I'm not following all the rules. I'm not following all the rules. I'm not following all the things that I'm supposed to be following and I'm doing my own thing. And it's not, some people have a problem with that, you know? So what made you, what made you leave, leave Gaza and, uh, Actually, actually, hold yeah. on, Hamad. Before I ask you the question, I wanted to know, and just because I don't know, so when so when we hear Palestine, right, and then they talk about Gaza Strip, or Ga some say Gaza Strip, some say Gaza City, and then they say West Bank. So mm -hmm. Gaza Strip, West Bank, it's all part of Palestine, right? Yeah. Or why are they saying, or it's just like a different parts of Palestine? Because Gaza, everybody like, okay, Gaza Strip, but you say it's it's a city, right? It's just a big city. No, so the so okay, all right. So Let's back up. <laughs> so back up to like the end of Ottoman rule, right? Mm -hmm. Into like uh, World War One, I, I think. So eighteen early nineteen hundred. Yeah. Okay. The British mandate of palestine which is historical palestine, palestine historical palestine is the british mandate of palestine is basically the area in which the and we can back up even more than that but the the area in which israel west bank and gaza strip are all one under one mandate of palestine okay but in 1917 uh, the British government promised Palestine as a location for Jewish kind of. Um, it was to solve what's called the Jewish problem. The Jewish problem. Mm -hmm. It was told they were told that hey, go to this to Palestine because it's a land without a people for a people without a land. But remind you, 
only 5% of people who lived in historical Palestine at that time were Jewish. It's like between 2 and 5%. So there were Jews yeah. there. No, my, my yeah. grandfather, my grandfather, I, at the end of his life, I took care of him. And he told me, he was, one time I was talking about it, like I was asking about the old days before the British and before all, like b before the, before 1967 war and before all that. He told, he was born 1919 and, you know, just before, just during the time of the British mandate coming in, um, he told me he had a Palestinian Jewish friend and he was his best friend and he worked with him, like he was, he, he's done business with him. Mm -hmm. uh, but when he saw what was happening by European Jews to all Palestinians at the time, he decided to leave for New York. Um, and he wrote him a letter back once after he left telling him that he worked in the uh, recycling of trash in New York and he was pretty happy with the, with the work and he made a lot of money because there is you know because it's a lot of work and it's a lot of money and he was he was you know like having a good time with that uh, but that was the last it was one time right after he left and we never heard from him again or my my grandfather we never heard from him again and it was strange that towards the end of the day he was giving me like information on like what to look up i told him about the internet at the time it was like 2004 2003 just before he died mm -hmm. and he told me look up this name i can't remember what i put in i can't remember what he told me but i kept looking and looking and looking and looking i never found anything except maybe recent like a few years ago i found one article talking about how jewish um people were kind of treated really badly in the trash collection system in new york it was one article but i didn't i didn't really read too much i just got really upset mm -hmm. uh when i heard it was like it was all bad news after that letter um Maybe he's thinking in terms of something, uh, you know, maybe it was good at some point, but it then turned bad. And we never, I don't know. I have no idea. Go so back to the map. But back to the map. <laughs> uh, so 1948, what happens, the, of course, the British, you know, they hand all their weapons to the Zionists at the time. Um, and then there was the Haganah, which is the the paramilitary for the Jewish people at the time, which got rolled over to the IDF, they started kicking Palestinians out of historical Palestine, pushing them into the West Bank and Gaza. Mm -hmm. Now, the West Bank and Gaza had like one little meeting point at some point in between 1948 uh, and 1967. Basically, the creation of Israel separated Palestine. They basically took the north coast from Haifa, Acre, uh, through all the way down to Negev and Elat, all the way down. So they kind of like separated 
Palestine into like almost two halves. Okay. Uh, one, like through the middle. Um, the ever the since then held. So ever since then, you'll see like the Israelis have been taking over closely in the West Bank. Uh, by 1967 war, uh, the land has been shrunk to 22 percent, and as like even right now the west bank is shrinking 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 um but gaza as a strip on its own along the the mediterranean border that has been isolated for quite some time ever since the first intifada started mm-hmm. we kind of like cuz my my father was saying all of his honeymoon dates or like a not the honeymoon dates, but uh, the engagement with my mom, they would always go up north, like to Haifa, and like go up to the pretty Palestine areas Mm. and just hang out in parks and stuff. But after the first Intifada, it all shut down. You started having a boxed-in Gaza, and the tight that it's been tightening, tightening, tightening. Now Gaza is five governments. Uh, you have north of Gaza, northern Gaza is Jabal, Yabit Lah, Yabit Hanun. And then you have Gaza government, which where I am from originally. I'm not a refugee. My family is not a refugee from the 19, 1948 war. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't have a refugee status. We're like Gazans. Mm-hmm. My family is on from the east side of the Gaza city, which is Shijaiya. means like... A, what I like to mean, I like to say, is the brave town. So, a brave town of of Gaza City, and then you have <clears throat> Deir el Balah, Khan Yunis, and Rafah. Just three different sections. Uh, sections, like counties, like counties. Yeah, but it's chunks. They're big chunks. Yeah. And right now, the north is what's predominantly or heavily being bombed. Although the south is still the being north bombed. and Gaza. So yeah. the ground invasion is in Gaza City, which is like. The economical civil hub, like what they're attacking right now, <laughs> what they're like, what's being attacked right now, mm-hmm. um, is where all the wealthy Palestinians live. They've like, or the wealthy Gazans live. They've attacked all that area, um, bombed the hell out of it, um, and basically destroyed the main artery that is Gaza through, you know, massive devastation in the city itself. So back in the, so when you said the the British uh, signed like some of the Palestinian land to, to, to Jewish people, that was something called, um, what is that? The Balfour, the Balfour, the Balfour, Balfour Declaration. Declaration. So that was Palestine, and then British said to the European Jewish people, go and take this land. But it wasn't supposed to be, as it is my understanding and from what I've seen, what is happening now. They, were, they said, okay, go live there, but it was supposed to be peaceful, wasn't it? It was supposed to be, there's nobody living there. They said, it's a, it's a land for a people, for a people without a land. But it was very much a land with a lot of people. Yeah. So it, it was supposed okay. to be a land without anyone for people without a land. 
So they said, go to this empty lot. There's an empty lot at the heart of the Arab, like of the Arabic kingdom at the time. Mm-hmm. Mind you that at the same time, the British occupation or the British rule um, was negotiating like the end of the Ottoman Empire with the Arabs, uh, because this is where the letter, the letters between McMahon, which is a, a British person, a British government official, with with the with like uh, the ancestor of the Jordanian kingdom family, mm-hmm. you know, because what happened was that, you know, they were negotiating the Arab kingdom with the Ottomans. They were saying, hey, uh, with with the British, because they were saying, hey, uh, British Empire, we will help you defeat the Ottoman Empire in World War One. But in return, we want an Arabic kingdom that spans from Morocco like a you know like the united states like a united arab kingdom mm-hmm. from morocco to syria uh and basically he said this is my intention and he told all the arabs we're getting an arab kingdom let's all fight the ottoman empire and kick him out because the british are going to give us the arabian kingdom that we've been dreaming about okay Typical. That, they, did not happen. that did not happen. They basically said uh, the response back after the war is done and after everything is kind of like uh, the support has been given. And it's not like you can tweet during that, those times. Once you declare something and the message goes out, it's really hard to pull it back in, to rein <laughs> it back in. So what ends up happening is that they respond and they say, actually, everybody wants to self-determinate. And we're gonna draw everybody's borders. You look at, you know, all the all the borders in the Middle East are all drawn by a ruler. They're not. They're not. <clears throat> they were defined by the British during that time. Mm-hmm. It's the most colonial thing to do is that they basically cut up everything. And I think the the king. This is how the Kingdom of Jordan started because. People in Mecca refused, kind of revolted against whoever made that decision. And that's why they gave them Jordan. Historically, they were the protectors of Mecca. They were the people who were running and managing and administering Mecca itself. What is Mecca? Mecca is where Muslims do their prayers, uh, where Muslims guide their prayers. it's considered the holiest prayer, site. The holiest site <laughs> for Muslims. We pray towards Mecca. Okay. We believe Mecca is a... It had a lot of pre-Muslim things happen there. It's part of the like pilgrimage the, every year. The but pilgrimage every pictures. year. It's like a black box in the middle and like tons, thousands of people moving in a circle around it okay. once a year. Okay, okay, okay. Yep, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I know. I know. Now, now I got it. Um, we're going to take a break to give a shout out to our favorite sponsor. Ingrid D. Magidson is a world renowned international artist based in Aspen, Colorado. She creates layered mixed media and abstract art. She's inspired by the beauty and nature and pieces from the Renaissance era. We are thrilled to have Ingrid D. Magidson as our sponsor, and we encourage you to support her incredible work. If you want to learn more about this artist, go visit her at www 
www.ingridmagatson.com. Again, that's www.ingridmagatson.com. Now let's get back to the show. Ariel, I have a question for you because Haman was saying something. He mentioned the word Zionism. So I wanted to ask you, how do you define Zionism? And also, do you think Zionism and Judaism are the same? Oh, this is a very complex question we have to break down. <clears throat> okay, so Zionism, the idea of Zionism starts in the early 1900s um, before the state of Israel, way, way after the creation of Judaism. Um, and it's created with this idea that the Jewish people need a place to live. So it gets confusing because if you look at Jewish people, our religion all talks about Jerusalem, the Judean story, um, all the holy sites that are in what's now Israel, historical Palestine. Um, and so there, there becomes this, this creation of Zionism. And if you look back at articles in the early 1900s, 1920s, there's a lot of Jewish people who actually flat out state Zionism is very dangerous for Judaism. We don't believe in Zionism. It was a very large grouping of people who said no. So it's kind of this belief that Jews should have sovereignty of their own nation, such we had thousands of years ago. That's really the the pure belief of Zionism. Mm -hmm. Aside from the fact <laughs> that Zionism will do anything in its power, no matter who's in its way, to get there. So if the Palestinian people are already there, Zionists believe they are the one true nation of this land. Everybody else needs to leave, which is not right. That's that's uh, a supremacy idea. Because I think I think Zionism is a form beyond the far right. Well, which is <laughs> no, I think it's beyond the far right where it's dangerous in th the three religions, right? And it, like you have Christian Zionism. Which oh, I is... think let's go back to the Zionist thing before yeah. we go there. Let's, but let, the, let me just yeah. finish explaining because okay. right. I think you're going to get lost in the right. sauce. Right. <laughs> um, where, where I think it gets confusing is Judaism and Zionism don't sound that different. So people are going to put them synonymously together. You have a people with a lot of trauma. Jewish people through the diaspora over thousands of years have been kicked from one country to another. We have the Spanish Inquisition. We obviously have the Holocaust. Almost every single place that the Jewish people go as part of the diaspora, even Ukraine, are murdered, pillaged, raped, whatever, killed. And so they go to the next place and they're kind of used as the scapegoat. Now you have Herzl, this guy saying, we're gonna live in sovereignty. And so they send people to historical Palestine. And I just read this and I love this quote. <laughs> and the rabbis come back, they send a telegram and they say, the bride is beautiful, but she's already married in stating that you can't have this land. It's already taken. You can't just come here and take this land. But irregardless of this, the Zionist project begins and they start small settlements in Palestine. So there are Jewish people there, but like I said, at that point, it's two to 5% of the population and they start building what you might refer to as a settlement or a kibbutz, which is a group of Jewish people creating a land, 
creating a system kind of in a socialistic belief. They share everything, they do everything together. Now in World War One, World War Two, we have the Nazis and six million Jews are massacred. In the interim of this, Jews everywhere are trying to escape, but they're denied. So Jews <clears throat> coming to the United States are turned away. A lot of them are turned away, go back to Germany, end up in a concentration camp, end up dying. So they're trying to escape anywhere they can. Where is a great place? Palestine. There's a lot of British Jews, like that's kind of our family, Russian, Polish, British. That's where our family kind of escapes to. There's a Jewish problem at the time, quote unquote, not really. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's not really a problem. It's just a lot of Jews living in Eastern Europe. And what do you do with all of them? So it becomes this idea to kind of funnel the Jewish people there. A lot of Zionists don't really like to hear that side of the story. Um, but that's really factually what has happened. So traumatized people shoved into a place, terribly traumatized people. What do traumatized people do? Traumatize another people. And so here we are, right? Um, and it's not to say that the Jews couldn't have survived or thrived there alongside the Palestinians. But the thought of Zionism is that we need to eradicate the entire land in order to have our own sovereignty, which is not correct. Or, the, or build an iron wall. Just basically part of the initial rhetoric of the Zionist movement mm. is the the literally it's an article piece. It's a it's a it's an article piece called the Iron Wall. Um and it's one of the Zionist thinkers where they said we are not gonna be able to live alongside of those people and we need a big wall to divide us and we need all these things to separate us and protect our way of life and the way we do things and the, and all these things and once you set that mentality of the iron wall right like we have to separate from the other people no matter what yeah you and then the other people like ahad ham who's like we don't the bride is already taken yeah let's let's find a more peaceful situation we don't want to overload this place and but the british had different thoughts right like they're trying to solve the jewish problem at the end of the day they, they are and i saw this one i was in the universe the first time i learned about zionism was like actual zionism and understand the difference between israel and palestine and and judaism and zionism it really started in university where I took a class about Zionism. Imagine he grew up in Gaza his whole life, moves to Egypt, and the first time he learns about Zionism and what Zionism, Zionism no, what is. No, it really like, is, like scientifically factual. and like yeah. factually, like I was in a classroom. But you had to get out to learn what was dehumanizing you and of your course. own people. Of course, no, because crazy. like, yeah, yeah. That's that's backwards. But I but it, but it wasn't like this this type of knowledge and this type of you know political science way of learning about the subject. I was sitting with like seventy five percent of the classroom were American. Yeah. You know, like seven, 
you know, Americans who potentially served in the Obama administration and potentially are serving now, uh, they all had, if you wanted to do public policy or like international policy, mm-hmm. you had to go to these different schools and learn what other people are saying. Um, and the the main point of the thing is that I was in that class and th- our assignment was to go find an actual source like a newspaper article, like a memo, like a letter from one person to the other uh, as factual evidence of history. So I went down to the basement in the in the American University in Cairo and I was th- flipping through the pages during the time, like just before um, the Belfort Declaration and I was going through reading the newspapers, like really old, you have to sit through like a little tiny thing. It's not like digitize or anything at the time. Uh, And I found a letter from one of the battalions of the British army, which basically said, we want to self-determinate. We have served the British army for X amount. We have a different way of life. We like to eat, like the food that we eat is different. The religion, how we practice our prayers is different. And we want to be stationed in Palestine. And I think this is where the idea for the Jewish problem began is that, hey, all these soldiers, all these Jewish soldiers that helped the British win the war, we're just going to put them all in Palestine, give them all the weapons they need because they're going to keep their weapons. They're not going to ship them all out. You know, they ended up... Something interesting that you said about the the iron wall. I think we as human beings can live together peacefully. I believe that. But when that becomes this idea, us versus them, or we have to be, our land has to be separate, our food, we have to be different, then it becomes a problem, right? Like, look everywhere in the world, right? Like, you know, that's what happened with Ukraine and Russia. Russia thinks that they also like... Israel, they think that Ukraine belongs to them, and they say there's no such thing as Ukraine. We are all one nation. And I say bullshit to that. The same what's happening, you know, what's happening now. You know, people come and say, you know, this is mine now, which is like, which is crazy to think. It's like you you live in your house, and some, right? And somebody comes like, your house is my house. Now, wait, wait a minute, what? You know, yeah. and like I said, when when this idea becomes we need to build a wall, we need to separate us and them, that's that's when that becomes a huge problem. Like on the reverse side of Zionism, like I, I we're trying to humanize the conversation. It's not to say that we, you know, are trying to dehumanize anybody. We're actually not trying to do that. Yeah. I think if you're a traumatized person escaping from generations and generations and generations of turmoil and extreme racism and being killed and you're promised something, that's going to be the most exciting thing you've probably ever experienced. You're promised this like dream life on a dreamland on all of these things, but it's all stolen. And I think mm-hmm. coming to that realization is really hard. Now, it comes synonymously with Judaism to kind of go back to your question, because there's a lot, in my opinion, of indoctrination, especially of American Jewish people. Um, And how does that happen? How do you indoctrinate an entire religion? (laughs) So Judaism is two things. It's a religion. And a lot of people believe it's actually a race. 
it's a race of people that are through a diaspora and keep their religion. So if you look at it, there's kind of religious practicing Jews and secular Jews. Secular Jews kind of follow maybe the calendar or, you know, they don't celebrate Christmas or something, but they're not going to temple all the time. They live a Jewish lifestyle and they call themselves Jewish, but they're not practicing Judaism day in and day out, right? Mm. And then on the flip side, you have very religious Jews. And then there's people kind of in between who do all the above. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. When you're going to educate yourself through a temple, through a synagogue, through Hebrew school, through something like that, um, and the state of Israel is so new, this is where the indoctrination comes in. It's like a promised land and it keeps continuing to being proposed that way because it is written in the Torah that way um, in some cases. And you can pull scripture and you can pull, you know, you mm -hmm. can pull anything from any religion out that you possibly want to. Right. Um, but it's it's put in our teachings together, which it really shouldn't be. Um, you know, you can look at Jewish people all over the world, Jewish people in America. We're not trying to claim New York as Jewish America. Like we're not, <laughs> that's not going to happen. You know, <laughs> like it doesn't, you find it funny, right? Like why on the reverse side, is it okay to do that to the Palestinian people? Yeah, It's not, mm -hmm. it's not. Um, but when you're going to Hebrew school and you're going to Jewish summer camp and you're doing all of these things, you're completely surrounded by the idea of a promised land, of this safe space that Jewish people have, and we're treated with excellency, and we have all these amazing things. But when you see it, it is not that. Um, and it's confusing for people. It's confusing to, I think, especially people in their 80s, you know, who have come out of that, and they're so vulnerable. Of course, they're going to lean into it. Of course, they're going to believe the Zionist approach, because they've experienced something awful. And for you, so Ariel, are you a practicing Jew? And where were you uh, when you were younger? Did you go to those camps and Hebrew schools and all of that? <laughs> yes, I went to her bar, no, bar mitzvah. Like... mitzvah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So well, let's back up from the beginning, maybe. Mm -hmm. Our childhoods. They're fairly, our childhoods are fairly different and also fairly similar. Um, I grew up obviously in American, in an American suburb. Um, and my parents weren't super religious, but they also weren't secular. So like we still went to temple every Friday or maybe a few times a month. We do all the Jewish holidays. It was something my mom really loved and cherished and like built in our immediate family, but our extended family isn't practicing Jews really, I would say mm -hmm. like beautiful cousin here. It's a very different lifestyle than my own. <laughs> <laughs> my poor grandma she was so upset <laughs> she can deal with it it's fine <laughs> it turned out amazing she should be really proud um but yeah I grew up in an American suburb I went to like normal elementary school my mom lived to tell this story that I came home from school crying at one point and she didn't understand why and I guess it was like Christmas season and all the kids we're singing Christmas carols and like preparing for a concert, but I didn't know what Christmas was. I didn't know any of this song. So I was like Aww. completely traumatized. Aww. I remember standing on little steps, like everybody's like jingle bells and this whole thing. I'm like, what <laughs> is this? And why have I not been like invited to the party? What are we doing? <laughs> you like, miss, just, you like discovered this thing. Oh my gosh, there's Christmas and jingle bells and all of that. 
And I didn't, I feel like in some ways I had a really normal American suburban upbringing and other ways I didn't. Like my elementary school was predominantly Asian Americans. I was one of like 10 white kids in the whole school. Um, And I was the only Jewish person at that school. Mm -hmm. And I grew up in California. So it's not like, I I didn't grow up in some strange place, but it was kind of, um, I was definitely always on the outside, which Mm -hmm. is not what you hear, I think, from a lot of white women around America. That's kind of the opposite experience. Um, as I got older, that became less and less. And it was kind of that specific school, I think, for just the demographics in the neighborhood happened to be Asian American. And then once I kind of grew out of that, but growing up Jewish in America is not an easy thing. I don't know if that's just me or maybe some other listeners can identify with that, but I was bullied a lot. Um, I was always called the Jewish. Sorry, specifically for being Jewish or, okay interesting why why was that anti i mean i'm not going to deny anti-semitism is very real and it's easy it's an easy like butt to a joke it's an easy scapegoat Mm -hmm. um and i was constantly bullied i mean like at one point were there palestinians doing this to you there was palestinians in our school i'm 100 percent sure did they bully you no, of course not. No, it's probably all white boys who did it, to be honest with you. At one really? point, at one point, somebody got my phone number and kept prank calling me and wouldn't stop. And it was like a group of kids and like saying terrible things to me. Someone like drew a swastika on my notebook. People oh were doing really gosh. terrible things. And I had to change my phone number. Oh that was like, gosh. that's traumatizing to a kid. That's real. I don't think that's not an isolated experience. That's you know, growing up in early 2000s, I feel like that's not alone. So my community, my sanctuary, right, is with Jewish people. Because I'm like, well, they don't make fun of me. Mm. <laughs> this is like, this is where my people are at. This is my community. These are all my things. Um, and I went to Hebrew school. I had a bat mitzvah. I was around like Jewish summer camps. I did a lot of stuff. I did foreign exchange. Um, I lived in Jerusalem. And I was like on this mission to find my Jewish identity. I was like convinced. I was like, I'm going to move to Israel. I'm going to do this thing for six months. I'm going to like become my true Jewish self. Like forget high school. We don't need that. (laughs) You know, like the people making fun of me, I'm going to go escape. Right. I thought it was a brilliant idea. I got there and it was like almost the exact opposite. Um, Why is that? I remember. Uh, When I first got there, we landed at Ben Gurion airport and I'm getting on the bus and we're going to go to outside of Jerusalem. There's this like very hilly area where our kibbutz was. And so we're on this road and I'm looking around and I'm like, God, I was really expecting this like, like beautiful landscape, which it's gorgeous, but it it doesn't really look that different from California. In my opinion, I was like, I came all this way halfway across the world and I'm like still in these green, beautiful Hills. Okay. I was like, what is this? Um, And as days go on, you're taking the bus and there's a bunch of soldiers on your bus with M16s. I don't know about you, but if you got on a public bus in America and you saw a bunch of people with M16s, would that be okay with you? No, certainly not okay with me. So culture shock one. It's just, you're like, what? (laughs) Why are these soldiers riding the bus with me? Two, we would be driving and when you get towards an area that's close to the West Bank or close to the Gaza Strip, there are massive walls, like concrete, huge, what are they? Concrete walls. But how, how high are they? 
Massive. They're massive. They're like as uh, big as a mid-rise building. A mid-rise building. So maybe eight stories high? No. Six stories high? Six, yeah. Six stories high? Five, Can six. Depends on the building. Can you cross depends over on... like into Gaza and like vice versa? Or is it like you don't? You have to walk through. This is a, com- I'll get, uh, yeah. yeah you okay, ask me as a Jewish American, West Bank, yes. Gaza at the time, 2012, no. Mm-hmm. That's probably not somewhere you'd want to go at that time. Um, until now. Until now. But I would be on the bus and I'd be riding past this massive concrete wall. And like growing up, we hear about the beautiful state of Israel and all these things. And you hear the word West Bank, but you're like, exactly like you kind of mentioned, what is the West Bank? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I thought it was like a riverbed when I hear the word bank. I'm like, I don't even know what that is. And we're driving past this massive concrete wall. And I start to ask questions. I'm like, what is that? And I don't get an answer from anybody or a straight answer that I find significant enough to make me not want to ask questions, like kind of just distracting me to look the other way rather than ask questions about what's on the other side. Mm-hmm. Um And I kept doing that throughout my trip of just asking these questions of like, there's Arab, what they refer to as Arab villages, which are really Palestinian villages um, in the state of Israel, outside of the West Bank, outside of Gaza, in the middle, and you can go to them. And I'd I'd wander around and like, just wonder why is that highly militarized? It just feels different. It looks different. People are on edge when they're around you. It's just doesn't feel right. And like, I grew up in the Bay Area, which... I find to be one of the most diverse places in America. I grew up predominantly around a lot of different races, around a lot of different people. My parents actively made it a point to educate me and show me all walks of life, poor, rich, Mexican, black people, white people, whatever people are around us. It was really important to them. And then I go here and it was like black and white. And I was like, what is this? (laughs) Like, I'm so confused. Mm -hmm. I don't get it. Um, up until the point that I actually went into the West Bank, which was even more confusing to me. I was like, why, why are we in the car waiting in line for maybe 20 or 30 minutes? Everybody has to get their IDs checked, ask, where are you going? But there's a massive line on the side of me behind bars. And I'm like, what are they waiting for? Like, this is not Disneyland. You're not waiting to go on the ride like you're waiting to go to the grocery store you're waiting to go home you're waiting to go to three four or five checkpoints more maybe and you can't go through a car so it was just this weird polarization of like again growing up in the bay very diverse very free place in california you can do kind of whatever you want and then a very segregated society and i just didn't quite understand that so when you went there and when you were going through through the trip and kind of going everywhere, did you start changing your opinion of what is the state of Israel is and kind of your learning from back in the day? I really started to question a lot of it. And now, now that I'm older, now that I can do more research, now that, you know, the world we live in exists, a lot of it was being fed propaganda. A mm. lot of it is indoctrination. Um, but how do you know that as a kid to question that when you've been taught something your entire life? It's hard to look 
at something, if you've only seen a pink screen and somebody's going to tell you it's blue, you're going to believe it's pink no matter what. Right. Yeah, yeah. So to flip this switch was really difficult. I remember losing a lot of my friends. I lost my whole community around me. I came back feeling a lot like a failure. I felt like I moved to the Jewish state to find my Judaism in which I found most Jews who live there are secular, who don't practice Judaism. I probably practice more than they did, which I was like so confused by. Came back and I was like, I'm done. <laughs> I don't want to be a part of this. this I'm just going to ditch this. I'm going to get through the last year of school. I'm not going to really be part of that community. I'm going to let it go. Like, oh, well, I lost all my friends. Oh, well, I lost my temple. Oh, well, I lost all these things and I'm going to forget about it. Um, and then uh, I was at a bar one night and I met you. I met a Palestinian. And it's so funny the way the story goes. <laughs> I'm like, I kind of pick up on his accent like a little bit. And I'm like, where are you from? And he's like, I'm from Jerusalem. And I was like, no, you're not. <laughs> Your heart is in Jerusalem. I know it is. But I was like, no, you're not. Mostly, mostly because I know this is such a terrible, probably racist idea. But like, there are very few Palestinians who still live in Jerusalem, even when I was there. So to, to to say you're from Jerusalem and you're living here, I'm like, I'm not quite buying it. I'm just not not believing well, you it. You have to buy it because all of them got kicked out. Facts. And facts. Replaced by it's true. It's true. But I said no. You're. Sense. It's true. It's it's. You very did. True. You did. I said it's. Where are you really from? And then you said Bethlehem, and I was like, Where are you really from? And he was like, I'm from Gaza. And I was like, Wow. Tell me more. I need to know. I was like, I was on the outside of the gates looking at all the signs, like you cannot enter area, blah, blah, blah. Like this is dangerous to your safety. All these, like, don't go any further. Um, the signs are pretty scary. The, <laughs> the signs are a little intimidating. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I wanted to go, I wanted to go back a little. Um, so Hamam, for you, what year did you come to United States and why did you decide to come here? Well, the first thing I wanted to do is because just before coming here, I applied for a master's program. I wanted to in United rebuild. States. Yes. Okay. No, I was in Gaza at the time. I was being a contractor, building my own legacy, or like rebuilding my dad's legacy. Mm -hmm. And you know, the first project went really good. Made lots of money. Had you know a blast. Learned a lot. But I couldn't get another job like as a contract as a small contractor because there were no materials no like there was no cement there was like even if you wanted to weld two pieces of metal the stick the the welding sticks are banned from entering gaza since 2007. can i ask so it's it's under siege so is israel like surrounded and they control what goes in or Okay. Yes. And then... Basically, have these like all, along this along the entire fence of Gaza, you have concrete walls mixed in with like automatic, you know, rifle areas where like there's like there is a safety zone where anything anything that gets in there gets shot right away. Uh, you have drones that are surveillance in Gaza the whole time. Nobody can. Egypt can't 
open the border on its own, except if it wants a military, like, you know, fight. Um, For the most part, Israel controls the border to Egypt. The water, yeah, they control the they control everything that goes to, uh, through Egypt, uh, and they have high coordination with Egypt to maintain open. So they're when you're dealing with like some Egyptians looking through your stuff, they're looking, like they're going through and making sure you have nothing when you go into Gaza, like in terms of weapons or anything like that. Not that. I know how that goes, but you know the on the water side you have also like military stuff outside. How many miles can you go out without getting five nautical miles? And uh, if you go past that, you'll you get the fishermen get shot. You know, get shot at or bombed or whatever. And was this? There's no port. Oh my gosh, was this your whole life growing up? Like, was it just? normal to there was a sweet spot for like the sweet time was like when you know you could you could travel to egypt you know at night you know like leaving because that's the nice thing is that if you because like before the siege before the first intifada you can literally like you know at 9 p.m decide you're gonna or like at 7 p.m you're gonna try to drive to cairo to egypt uh, and, you know, uh, you know, travel at night because in the Sinai is really hot during the day. And if you want to take a summer break, uh, and at the time, like in the nineties, the AC wasn't, you know, as prevalent in the older cars. So, so it's much nicer to travel through the desert at night because it's, it's cold and you can bundle up and be warm and be nice. It's not, you're not sweating the whole ride. Maybe you can tell them when the first intifada, the second intifada are. The first intifada was started before I was born. So 1986, 1987. Mm -hmm. And intifada just means uprising. Like uprising, a revolt. Revolt, revolt, yeah. yeah. Uh, and then the second intifada started in 2001. Um, basically after it seemed like more settlements in Jerusalem and in East, East Jerusalem were being built against the Oslo Accords. And um, the prime minister of Israel at the time, Ariel Sharon, tried to go you know, with his shoes inside the Al-Aqsa Mosque. And the kids got angry, threw rocks, and they shot a few kids and everybody you know, went crazy and you're killing all the kids and everybody just went and started throwing rocks and free Palestine. And, mm -hmm. you know, they, the second intifada led, kind of dragged on, never ended, you know? People were very upset. People were very upset, especially because, you know, the Israeli army was like killing kids with their parents, kids who had nothing to do with anything. They were just like, watching or like once you see kids dying because they're throwing a rock at a tank if you if there's a little kid throwing a rock at a tank does that kid deserve a bullet back i don't know there's so much on the news now to where specifically about how many children have been killed is that because they wanted to what what they call it and what I've heard a lot on, on the news and everywhere to do the ethnic cleansing. So to kill the kids so 
so there's no more young people to to grow yeah. the the nation of Palestine. Is is that is that why you think? Yes, I think I do, like I don't know how else I would explain it. Their blatant disregard to human life, especially children, um, and the continuous the continued practices of ethnic cleansing, all its different forms that have begun since before the 1948 war uh, up until this day leads and the statements that were provided by Israeli officials, you know, during the war, war, they are human animals. We're going to kill every man, woman and child and horse and ox and things. And like all the statements that they're saying are in, extremely genocidal. And that's according to Omer Bertov, which is a three-time uh, Holocaust Museum, like, award, like, you know, three times he won the award from the Holocaust Museum mm -hmm. and is celebrated as a, you know, as an elevated Israeli scholar is he's saying... He's a genocide researcher. He's a genocide researcher. He, mm -hmm. he researched the Holocaust and is saying there is elements of intent to genocide or genocide itself based on the actions that they're taking right now so it's not i'm not saying it like i never knew what the definition of genocide is until i saw rez Siegel post mm -hmm. his argument um which is another like you know jewish scholar i uh, posted it on jewish you know currents and can basically put it black and white and it's like all this all this science like if you if you think of it like everybody asks me what does it mean to be a palestinian a palestinian is meant you can have a covid shutdown at any moment <laughs> you know we have a covid shutdown every so often because you know what when the covid shutdown happened i'm like this feels like gaza right now you know when there's bombing starts Everybody shelters in place. You buy food. You put it away. You sit at home. Every you can't work from home. There's bombing outside. You can't mm -hmm. really walk or go do anything. It's literally like pandemic, and it happens every couple years. Yeah. Like every couple years since two, the year two thousand, even before the year two thousand, two thousand in nineteen ninety eight, there was a small little uprising. And there's like we have been continuously living this lifestyle every so often and everybody anybody speaks about palestine they get canned somehow or they change their words or like like you know uh like a supermodel like Gigi hadith she just posted free palestine or something mm -hmm. absolutely right away fired i'm like what where's freedom of speech where is anything? we have freedom of speech here Oh my god, that happened with Bel Hadid, or maybe it was Bel Hadid. She got fired from Dior. Yeah, she, yeah. Exactly. she got fired from Dior like that. Elon Musk had to delete some tweets. Yeah, you know how? How whack what? is that? Because I feel like majority of the is world is standing. He, he's yeah. He, it's his own platform. He's the richest guy in the world, and somehow he they made him remove a tweet. Because he was discussing something. I, but again, I think it just I'm, goes, I'm not sure who they are. 
Mm. I'm not sure they actually are, and it feels like. Well, I just like this thing. Conspiracy, but it's. It's the occupied. It's it's the occupied versus the occupier, and the occupier right now in your story and our story right now is Israel occupying Palestine. But I think in these incidences where Bella Hadid gets fired or Elon Musk's tweets get deleted or whatever we're seeing, people get canceled right and left, the students getting doxxed, all of these things, they're still being occupied. They're not necessarily being occupied by the state of Israel, but they're being occupied by somebody else. So I think it's so much greater than the story and what's happening on the land and the bombings and the killings and the mass destruction. Like... It's people standing up. And for the first time, I really think in history, we have the opportunity to change it. We're at this, we've been at, maybe we've crossed the line now of a sweet spot of creating and facilitating change that a native people do not have to go through this again. And we're failing. We're completely failing. I'm just like, for me, it's like most of the things that have happened after the Black Lives Matter movement Mm -hmm. is we saw sweeping diversity equity and inclusion um you know reform within corporate america you know that was really nice to see and like governance and city bodies and stuff like that more than that i think even accountability for it like if a company you know if you look at big companies and they aren't meeting those criteria for diversity and inclusion the path to get there just like the path for sustainability or the path for you know whatever they're trying to accomplish that's been a huge initiative post that. Yeah. Like, I feel especially in San Francisco, maybe we're just in a microclimate of that. Um, no, but it's it's happening across like many, many companies. They have a yeah. DEI person, they have a DEI policy, they have a, yeah. and, the, and the point is when it comes to Palestinians and like the American Zionist, like American Israeli Zionist, you talk to them about DEI and their startups in San Francisco, they're going to like, you know, hit all the correct points. Hmm. Uh, but when you talk about Palestinians, they're... You're threatening their security. You're their threatening safety. your security, their safety, their identity, their Jewishness. Yeah. Uh, everything becomes on the line and there is no longer room to discuss, you know, equity diversity it's interesting how it how it gets shut down right away yeah you see and what you said Ariel you know how it is you said it's more than just what's happening on the land right because here it seems like if you say anything right anything especially if you have bigger platform right right away right away you cut off you done you know what I mean so and it's... then what's the point of having a platform at that point? Like, mm-hmm. even for me right now, like, we have a good following. We have a lot of people. I have these people. It's almost my due diligence to educate these people who may not otherwise be educated. Those are people who have a trusted community, who understand me, who know me as a person. And I'm an American Jew married to a Palestinian. If If I can't even share that on my own platform, I don't even think that it, they should be following me. They're in the wrong place. Yeah. And that's okay. You know, I don't have, I'm, I'm okay with not being for everybody, but what's the point of it? If you can't even spread the information that needs to be shown to the world. Yeah. So my dad shared a story. He went to Israel when he was growing up and it was before I think the wall was built and he was staying with a Palestinian family. And he told me, 
um, that, you know, this family was so gracious and nice. And he said that his, the family he's staying with, I think was his friend, the dad or whatever, he would cross over and go to work each day. And they were talking about like the military involvement there. So in order to, you know, get all these benefits from the government, you have to be a part of the military. And he was saying that his friend, um, he didn't want to go and like be a part of the military because he was like, if I'm in the military, I have to fight my people. So why would I do that? But in that exchange, by not being in the military, he, you know, didn't get free schooling, I think was what it was. He was in his master's program, so he didn't have access to schooling and like all these benefits that come with being in the military. Now it's a, yeah, now it's a jail sentence and it's required for, I don't know if people know that, like it's required if you are an Israeli citizen to be in the military. I think it's two years for girls and three years for boys. Um, and if you do not go, you are put in jail and you, you do lose some of the rights continuing after that if you choose not to. We have a friend who did that, who decided not to go and spent time in jail doing this. Um, and that applies if you're an Israeli citizen living outside. So if maybe... Or a Palestinian Israeli living inside. Yeah. Because, mm-hmm. you know, like this is the the ethnic cleansing, right? It's like Palestinians inside of Israel... Which you might hear... Are not called... Yeah. Palestinians, they're called Arabs. They're called Israeli Arabs. Yeah, Arab Israelis. They're because they're trying to take their identity, their Palestinian identity away from them by naming them Arab. But they're not they have nothing to do with the Palestinian cause. Yeah. I was also when I lived there, I was so confused by that because there are Jews across like in Arabian nations, right? Like Iranian Jews, Iraqi Jews, Syrian Jews, and there's a siren. <laughs> oh, I was like, I can't tell if it's here or there because we have a lot of sirens here too. <laughs> the joy of living in the oh, big city. Right. <laughs> but when the, um, a lot of times when I felt when I was there, like Syrian Jews or Iraqi Jews would, would say that they're an Iraqi Jew first before they're a Jewish Israeli person. They were so defined by that. So I was confused when you had Arab Israelis. I was like, is that a Jewish person of Arab descent somehow? Or is that a Palestinian? It didn't like there were questions that I never got answers to while I was there. It was like dodge, like dodge the bullet, give me weird things. And I just didn't fall for it. Just couldn't take it. Good job. Nice yeah, I know. One. Okay, so can we get into how they met? Or is there anything you want to back up? Yeah, but yeah. just before, then we're going to get to the love story because this, you guys, is the hope for the future. What did Jay, what did your dad say to us? We are, he sent me a beautiful text after our wedding. He was like, you are the future. I am delighted to see what the world will, like what ha- will happen with the world. Wow. We're the UN. Yeah. The UN. We're the UN. We're the UN. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jay is just amazing. Um, the UN up... doesn't work. We... <laughs> Facts. Okay. Thank you. We're done, right? <laughs> so, how, when you came to US, being a Palestinian, what you witnessed there, you know, everything, you come to US, because I'm also an immigrant, right? So I wonder how was your life here in U.S. and how big of a culture shock you had when you came here? 
Well, I think it all started when I opened my phone, like the first time I experienced my phone with 3G. And I put in the address on the map or where I wanted to go, like, I don't know, Powell Street, like Powell Station or something. And I put it in. And then there's the all these options. I mean, you can walk to it, you can drive to it, you can take the bus to it. Uh, you can, you know, there was no Uber at the time. You could take a train plus bus. It like bus. tells you how to get to one place. And I was like, oh my god, this is the best thing. So I started going places. <laughs> I just started going places. Like, where can I go? Can I go to LA? I'm like, holy crap! I went to LA like two weeks in. There was like a you like a young professional. AGC, like American um, General Contractors Forum for young people. And I'm like, oh my God, this looks legit. Let me go. And I just hopped on a bus and just like, I had very little money at the time. And I just like took a red eye bus to LA, did the whole event. I was so happy. I was just so happy to be free, to be free. Freedom of travel to go places and not have to like go through checkpoints, not have to go through, oh, I need to get a permit to go from Gaza to Jerusalem, right? It's like everything is so, and there's like military everywhere. And everywhere you go is like, there's so much tension and racism and it's just, it's bad. And here, I'm like landing here, the... The energy feels the same, like back home. The landscape, the, the, the landscape, weather is the, same. the weather. I'm tasting fruits. It tastes like home. I'm tasting oranges. Tastes like home. Everything tastes like home. I'm like, oh my god, I can get zaka from the Mission Street. You know, like you can get a lot of the Palestinian stuff and feeling here, and you can get the American thing. And with her. You know, I started learning about Asian culture, like San Francisco's Asian culture is just beautiful here. And you just try to all the Asian food and all the Asian things. And you're like, wow, I can experience all this stuff. And it's like my brain is just expanding, expanding. My mind was opened like. I don't know, it's like, it's, it's like, you know, enlightenment, like, hey, you can be diverse, you can be free, you can learn things, you can move, you can seek landscape. You're not tied to this like 30, like, you know, if you drive from the nor most northern part of Gaza to the southern par part of Gaza, and you're like, you know, in a hurry, you can do it in 22 minutes. Mm. Wow. Crazy. That is crazy. And I think my experience, if I want to sum up my experience, it's the reverse. I lived my whole life in freedom in California, doing whatever I wanted with 5G and getting maps everywhere and doing buses and whatever. 5G. Yeah. And then I go <laughs> she there. started with 3G. You're like, I've been living with 5Gs, okay? Yeah, 5G, San Francisco, okay? Uh, Bay Area, all the way. Uh, and then I go there and there's walls and checkpoints and segregation and racism and military. It's so confusing. And I, and you're told that this is the promised land. Yeah, I thought this this is not what I was promised. I will, this was incorrect. Yeah. One last question. I wonder if you, being a Palestinian and you know, and a man of color, have you ever experienced racism here? And if you, of course. did you? And okay, can you talk a little bit about that? 
when I say 2021 war, and I was pretty shook. Like it was like it wasn't like a long war. It was a it was a very quick war, but it was very deadly and it was very intense. And it started with like bombing entire towers down. Like they would bomb an entire tower, a residential tower, right away. And I was pretty shook about it. You know, like it's like being COVID. You know, <laughs> like for me, this is COVID within COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's your family. It's your friends. It's my family is my friends. Know. It's everything I know. It's mm-hmm. like everybody I know, everybody I care about. Like over there, it's I have a lot of family. Five hundred family members over there, and I'm pretty shook up. And I'm, you know, I'm somebody's saying like how are you doing and i'm like um and this is a person that i you know that we hung out we like we were good together and for me for him to say well you know those those are savages or something like that i'm like dude you're talking about me like i am one of those savages that you're talking about Mm. i'm like this is fascist rhetoric and i and i don't want that uh, I've been called the flight risk in the same company. You know, like you're like, well, I'm not going to promote you because you're a flight risk. I'm like, I didn't even know what that meant. What does it mean? It means that I can get deported at any time because I'm not American. Oh. You know, I'm a flight risk. Like this is, and it's a few looks here and there, but it's, but in San Francisco, it's hard to get discriminated against. Well, Once you feel, start... Yeah, I feel we live in a, a pretty, we live in a bubble. We live in a diverse area where you see a mix of people all the time. So it's not as in your face. Yeah. But if we go somewhere else, if we go out of state, it's it's certainly we get more stares. She's definitely my protector at the time. <laughs> she protects me. Yeah, sure. You're with a, a white woman. I mean, you're you're safe, right? And and reverse if we're in a maybe bad sketchy area, you're the protector. Yes, so yes. we got each other. Yeah. When they said so. Oakland was scary, everybody keeps telling me, "Oh, Oakland is so unsafe. It's so scary." I'm like, love Oakland. <laughs> Because, because it depends you see, it depends what you're comparing it to okay oh. so now now we can get to the to the love story love story so i love it when you told me at her wedding she said a palestinian and a jew walked into a bar <laughs> That's my That's, this is how i started my vows so you met in how what was the interaction you did you buy him a drink was that what i remember the story or you want to tell the story do you want to say the truth or the the truth the, the truth there's only the truth i was Nothing leaving the truth he had a beer i had, had an, an extra, extra beer. beer yeah she took someone she took Haysom's beer that's my, your brother my brother's beer yeah no, okay you're you're messing up the story i'm, I'm gonna start from up. scratch okay. so my roommate at the time um she was here for like i don't know six months living from france um and she came to me, she came to my room and she was like, do you want to go out with us tonight? I'm going with a few friends, like come with us. And we lived in a house with seven people. And I was like, yeah, I'm, bo- I'm like tired. I don't want to. And then I went and I looked in the mirror. I was like, oh, my hair looks good. I think I'll go. Um, <laughs> so I went. It's true. It did. It did look good. That's nice. So we go to this bar or we go to a few bars and we end at the last one. Um, 
And I sat down and I was like, oh, let me go get a beer. And she was seeing this guy who happens to, to be your brother um, that I had met, I think, one time, one morning before, but a quick kind of introduction. And he was like, oh, just have mine. Don't worry. Like, I'm not going to drink it. Have my beer. It's like, oh, that's really nice. Okay, what a gentleman. She picked a good one. Yeah. <laughs> so I drank the beer. And then I felt guilty. I was like, oh, my God, I drank this guy's beer. Like, I have to go buy him one and me one because I obviously needed another one, clearly, at the bar. Um, and it was like a <clears throat> during the day, it's like a restaurant. And at night, it turns into a club. So it was like when we got there, it was more club vibe. But the beer was really cheap. I think at the a night of like two dollar beers I was like oh I don't feel that bad <laughs> yeah, buy it for him. yeah it was nothing okay. so I go and I go to give him the beer he's like no I don't want it and I was like okay so oh, now I'm just gonna be now with two beers when she's getting the beer everybody else has gone dancing and I'm decided to go home because he's the only know, one at the table like I dropped off Haysem you know said hello had a drink with everybody and then everybody went dancing or get another drink or something and, and then I, I turn was, around, he has I his was jacket, jacket half on. on, and I'm just leaving. He has a jacket half on, and I was like, do you want to be friends? Here's a beer, or here's a beer, or do you want to be friends? And he, like, takes the jacket off. He's I'm like, like yep. taking the jacket <laughs> off. Like, yeah, I'll have a beer. I wasn't leaving. And we talked. Okay, so the way we talked, our, our elbows were on our knees. Like, we were, like, having it. We were hunched over having a conversation. We weren't, we were, like, ready to hash it out. We weren't yeah. trying to be cute. We weren't, like, oh, I didn't know who we were. I didn't, you didn't know who I was. No, because as, like, when we got to know each other, she's an interior designer. I'm a builder. I was building a hotel at the time. Which was in front of my bus stop. That and I hated our interior designer. And I I was she's not listening right now. I was, <laughs> but sorry. no, I I liked our interior designer, but I hated her work, like because it was confusing to a lot of people. And I was working on Salesforce Tower on the design team, and I hated the contractor because they would just change everything. They would be like, "No, you can't do this," and we'd be like, "Why?" Because it's it was expensive, just, probably. But <laughs> we just kept. So we were really just kind of bitching and moaning, yeah, about work like hunched over and then we you know like yeah. interior designers and construction people they do like, not get along they do not get along normally no unless you're on hgtv i guess you get along <laughs> is that the next, i don't know is that the next step for you guys HGTV? manifesting, manifesting. <laughs> yeah. but yeah we just we sat there and talked and then we talked like he found out i was jewish i found out he was palestinian um, and then we looked up and there's literally a lady mopping the floors. Like everybody had left. The bar was yeah. closing down. The music was shut off and we did not even know. We were like, oh, okay, we'll leave. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I that love was... that. Right. It's my favorite. Did you have? And then I forgot her phone number. Oh, oh yeah. You didn't <laughs> ask her? I felt, I felt that I knew her for such a long time. Yeah, we really felt connected and I lived in the mission. And so he was so nice. He walked me home. Yeah. And we just chatted all the way home and I got lost on the way. I don't, like, how would I get lost going to my own house? I don't know. Probably yeah. just faith. We're falling then, in love. Yeah, I was distracted. Um, and I, then you forgot my number. And I was if, really upset. I took offense to I it. She got upset. And like, I am like, you know, I'm going home and on the way I'm texting her friend. I'm like, can I forgot her number. Can you send it to me? I don't know how I did that. <laughs> Can you and ask thinking, her for her number? I'm thinking in my head, this guy, he didn't even get my number. How rude. Like, how disrespectful. And I hear nothing. 
This is Sunday night, Saturday night. Or and Saturday. I didn't see her. So that's the thing is she didn't want to text me like, oh, do you want this guy's number? She wanted to wait to have a conversation with me because she she was my and friend. And I heard nothing until when. Yeah, we would sit outside. She, and, she would. Yeah. I would send her a text. And I, like, ah, for it. <laughs> I, I miss you. Can we hang out? And she's like, no, I'm busy. No, I don't want to. <laughs> She played hard again. And then he's, what did you do on the last I bribed time? you with food. You were like, let's. I just want to feed you. I just you were want like, to buy. Let's feed you. Pick one of these restaurants. Like, here are the places I would like to go to. Can and you he pick? let me pick. And I was like, I'll be there in 20 minutes. <laughs> nice. I'm like, whoa. <laughs> that was her story. That was also your story. My story, too. <laughs> I love it. Let me feed No, but you. <laughs> ever since, we've been joined at the hip. Yeah. Yeah, we moved in together really early. I think we were only together six months. My family thought I was like insane. Yeah. Um, you being a Jewish woman and a Palestinian man, you get together. Did you get any backlash from either your family, your community, or were everybody very acceptive of your love? The, our immediate circle here yeah. is very supportive. Yeah, and up I until think this, up until a certain point, but a I certain think point. I just want to preface that that like the topic of being Palestinian and being Jewish is an open topic for us. So it's not something that we just didn't talk about or didn't say. I think like I'd preface the the conversation with like I was already against Zionism. I had already formed my opinions ten years before I had met him. Mm -hmm. So it came very fluidly and organically. Um, but there have always been some hiccups. There are going to be people we run into who it can be a little uncomfortable with yeah. or start fights with or. Yeah. 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 We've had our fair share of encounters. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's interesting to, you know, when you are in a, in a couple where it's not quote unquote the same. Everybody yes. always have to question it. Not everybody. Not everybody. Let me take it back. I remember somebody at work asked me, oh, it's interesting that you are Ukrainian and you married to an American black man. As if there is somewhere a rule to where a Ukrainian cannot marry an American black man because I don't know what's going to happen. I feel like it's somewhere in there. You guys have a lot of similar stories or lines because of where you guys come from and your backgrounds in some ways too. Yeah. And you've, you know, a lot of like, and you know, in my community, in Ukraine community here, here in Denver, you know, they were racist towards us. They said some horrible things about my kids, you know, so I no longer want to be around them, but it, it's it's again but your kids must be so cute oh my, so cute my kids They're beautiful my kids are the cutest mixed baby they are the best and it's very smart so hopefully you guys have a lot of beautiful children if you choose well, to have that science too it's like the more diversity you have the better, the better humans the become right thank you no i mean like if we really think about the world in like 200 years it's going to be all mixed people mm -hmm. There's not a world in which it's not. I have hope for that. Um, did you guys have a defining moment when you knew, like, each other were the one? It was like a compounding... Compound moment. interest. It's like compounding <laughs> interest. It's like, you know, like, it's not one thing mm -hmm. makes you 
like from history, from my relationships in the past, uh, true love, I think, I think like actual love is built over time of understanding each other and being able to navigate one another, you know, when we have difficult times and how do we carry ourselves in different types of scenarios towards the other person. That was the most you responsive. Yeah. <laughs> like very logical and well thought out, outlined. Beautiful. Excellent. No, I love it. It's so you. Okay. Mine is not that. I know. I'm sure. <laughs> You're a different person. And that's why, and that's why, and that's why two different people get married together. Okay. Because you can, one has to be emotional. One has to be logical. Yes. Yes. No, I definitely knew at the bar. I looked at you. When you I knew handed, at the bar. I knew at the bar. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> you know? Doomed. <laughs> yeah. I handed you the beer. I think that's why I was so upset you didn't get my number because in my head I was like, oh no. I um, played all my cards, right? You did. <laughs> I handed you the beer and I looked up at you because you're so tall and I'm very short. And I in my head I was like, this guy's gonna be trouble. My life is about to change. And then I was like, I knew. Yeah. I knew really early on. Because there were so many things leading up like okay, just looking at the logic, a guy asks you to move in after, you know, four months of dating. Because she which, was there all the time. Which I had been she sleeping. She didn't go home. Which I had been she sleeping. She didn't go home. But <laughs> she's paying rent. I paid rent for four months. I never and, went there. No, I never went home. I went home to do laundry or pick up clothes, and I went back to his house every single day. Like, from week number two, I never went back home. I'm like... Why are you paying rent? Just stay over. And I didn't question it at all. I was like, let's sign a year lease. That's not questionable. It's fine. Well, we found a it. nice studio apartment. Yeah. No, I, I had no doubt. Like ever since <laughs> I've been young, Ariel, like she knows what she wants. And I love it. It's my favorite. Like I know. Is Isabella described you in a really nice way? She said she's a she's a boss lady and I like boss ladies. <laughs> she's a boss lady. And yeah. she's amazing too. Yeah. Thank you. Like and I think the first comment. time, I think one of the key things that I was missing in previous relationships is my connection with Palestinian food. Because like that, it to me is so, like for me, it's it's what I grew up eating. It's what my grandfather grew up eating, what my grandma fed me, my, my mom fed me, what my dad fed me. And one of our dates, you know, I would call this the defining moment, the date, the defining moment, the date, the date. And I was so tired, and I think uh, I didn't want to go out and eat, and I just made a, a whole Palestinian dinner, just like how my grandfather would do it on my mom's side, like a meze. Plate. Like a meze thing, like fava beans, some labna, some like little pieces of bread, some cucumbers, some things. It's like all the spreads, all the little cheeses, the little things. Veggies. Veggies. Like I put it all out, you know, not a single meat item on there, like zero meat. Just like like flavorful, flavorful vegetable spreads and things. And she loved it. 
And I made her mint tea and she drank the mint tea. She's like, wow, this is amazing. I remember like six months before meeting you telling one of my friends, like, I need a man who can make me tea. And here he was. <laughs> and I made her tea and she's never had the tea, the Palestinian, the Gazan tea. That Not I the made. way that you make, yeah. No. Well, you make it super sweet and delicious. So you yes. can't say no to it's that. It's like, uh, you know, like a fruit punch, but in tea mm -hmm. form. Oh, that sounds Not so good. It's, the it, mint yeah it is it's a very strong mint tea mint it's sweet with like uh yeah so good that's amazing. and she liked it i'm gonna put the recipe she like in it. her description <laughs> yeah and she uh, no talk about the turkish restaurant the first time we actually ate together that's the defining moment that's a defining moment that's yeah. another not the candle lit with the beans. no when when you first saw me eat with my hands so you know, I took her to a to a Turkish uh, Turkish restaurant. And the owner is from Gaza. So it's a Turkish Palestinian restaurant. Turkish Palestinian restaurant. So they have a nice trio. That's like the vegetarian little things, you know, the babarnouj and the falafel and the hummus and stuff. And they give you little breads. So now, like when you when you eat. You know, Palestinians, we like to eat with the bread, make a little bread scoop, and you scoop out, and you eat. And I looked at her, I was like, they gave her a plate, and I'm like, okay, she's going to, like all Americans do, they take whatever they want, and they put on their plate, and then eat. Uh, but we don't eat like that, you know, like I thought that's, so I started just like, you know, making the little you know, scoops of pita and doing this and eating. And she started doing it too. And I looked at her like, what? He looked at me like I was clinically insane. Like <laughs> I did something wrong. And he looked at him and I stopped eating. I still had food in my mouth. And I was like, did I do something wrong? Like, am I inappropriate? <laughs> and you're like, I never saw a white person eat like this before. <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm sorry, but it's it's not like uh, you have it's to true. learn. It's true. But I also like have been to India. I lived in Jerusalem. Like I've been around. I grew up here. Like I've been around yeah. a lot of people and a lot of things. Yeah, I know. But it's not common. No, it's certainly it's not, not common. common. No, like, it was just it's funny. It's funny like, sometimes, you know. Don't be somebody, judgmental. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> But if you're ever, like, the rule is, the rule is, if you're ever doing, you know, did you, you guys know what za'atar is? No. You don't know what za'atar is? It's like thyme. It's like a, it's a Palestinian spice. Thyme, oregano. Thyme, sesame, yeah. sunflower, spices. That's a secret recipe. And salt. So, so it's just, like, the most Palestinian thing you can ever eat It's is this. So would you see it's like powder like, you know, on a when they give it to you, it's powder like. And the rule is if there's olive oil, you dip the pita in the olive oil first before you dip anywhere else. Mm -hmm. Don't want to get the olive oil dirty. Does that make sense? Yes. You can't put the pita in the you powder. You put first. the oil and then the spice. Yes. And then you eat it. Yes. This is a Palestinian thing. Yes, it's etiquette when you're eating. In case Try you're... always not to transport when you're double dipping. <laughs> you just have all kinds of eating rules. Like, eat for, if you're eating a shared bowl, 
Um, and like, eat and always in front of you. Don't eat in front like, of the other person. Like if I have a bowl and he's eating on this side, like you can't dip on his side. You got to dip on your own side. Dip on your own side. Everybody got their own. <laughs> so side. you're kind of left with this thing. <laughs> yeah, there are rules and etiquette. Apparently, yes, there is. It's so funny how you like you have one bowl, right? So the bowl is shared, but you like you don't dip on my side. You dip on your side. Exactly. But I let her dip on my side. I do dip on, on his side. Hey, mom, when you get all... married, there's no sides. Okay, there's one side, and it's usually the woman's side, and she's usually right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Except, like, 99% of the time, he's actually right, and I'm wrong. Which thank is, you. yeah. You're like, thank you, <laughs> finally. I think, like, one of the funny things was, like, we went one time with a, with a group of people. I'm not going to say names. And, you know, we went to a Mediterranean, like, like, Mediterranean, like, you know, Semite food, which is like, you know, Palestinian, Lebanese, you know, that area, like Palestinian, Lebanese, Jordan, Syria, we all have the same dishes, everybody just has a little twist on it. And there was a group of people, some of them were not, you know, uh, some of them were American, you know, and I started dipping like this, you know, for the little things, the little, you know, appetizers and things. And I don't know if they were like, like I would take into my plate and then do this because, you know, it's polite. Um, but they got really uh, shocked when I was able to use the fork and the spoon. They yeah, were staring a... at you. Maybe that's a good racism question. They were looking at you. I've never seen anybody look like, at you. Uh, like that. And, and then they looked at each other and he's like, they, he can do that too. Like, you know, like he can. He like can he made eat. the connection that you can eat with your hands and with the fork with and knife. With a fork and knife. He, they thought that I could only eat with my hands. Do you think he or she realized what it was? They, those people Absolutely were in not. a group with you, right? So they were not just like yeah. random people. So group with you, your, well, I don't know, friends. Uh, they don't sound really good. So I hope you're not friends with them no more. But th- just you <laughs> said. <laughs> we were at a dinner with acquaintances. Yeah, not, yeah. None of us were quite friends. Yeah. Okay. And they look at you. They did. So they didn't say directly to you. They look at each other and say, oh, he yeah. can do it. He can do it. That is just. But also it was kind of in a in a tone and a and a height of voice that was like meant to be heard by other people. Like although they were looking at their partner, it was like meant to be heard by the table. Yeah. Right. It's weird. Oh, it's like so because it's like white is a superior race. Like we eat with silverware. Like there's different cultures. It comes in all different kinds of, of, of yeah. forms. Yeah. And you know, like after learning about early child development actually eating with your hands and learning how to eat with your hands is so beneficial for your brain for hand eye coordination for all types of like coordination in your brain eating with the hand mm-hmm. is more natural and can benefit the baby more than using a fork and a knife yeah because they have to figure out where to put the food <laughs> right right um... <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh oh my gosh you guys what a beautiful story um and i don't know i have a question um 
so we can let you go because I know it's getting late and tomorrow is Tuesday and not Friday. But I wonder, like, for you, Hamam, when you look at what's happening now in Palestine, do you have a hope for bright future in Palestine and that Palestine will be free in the near future? I do. I do. I think... Um... I think we do, like the Palestinians right now, what we have on our side. And this is going to be hard to hear for a lot of people. But we have UN Resolution 194, which is the right of return for all Palestinians who are ex forcibly, like ethnically cleansed from Palestine, that have a right to return for peace, you know, Uh, just, like UN Security Council 242 is, <clears throat> is also international law that basically says that Palestine is encompassing of the Gaza Strip and the West Bank, including East Jerusalem. And the key point in East Jerusalem is that the old city of Jerusalem is in East, in East Jerusalem. So the Golden Dome... Al-Aqsa Mosque, this is all Palestinian land. Now, with the current issue of Gaza, what we have is a trifecta where you have documented like law for right of return, borders, 1967, and, you know, a potentially committed intent to genocide trifecta. And you have a United Nations that's sick and tired of the costs that Israel is imposing on it. Because, you know, for every UN resolution and everything that the Israel is not abiding by international law, the people who are having to pick up the pieces are the United Nations, whether it's UNRWA or UNRWA, the relief agencies. Um, we are having, you know, UNICEF, the World Bank, uh, the World Health Organization. Everybody's invested into solving this problem because th there's a lot of international laws that are being broken by Israel and they're cheered along with, you know, through APEC, which is like a, you know, a, a lobby that supports, you know, election fundraising for a lot of like politicians across the aisle. I just don't think that the world is going to stand by during this time with the trifecta of international laws being broken in clear terms that every scholar that is anyway related to history, you know, civil rights, human rights, can side with Israel. It's not. It's no longer working 
And two months before the war, <clears throat> there was a damning report sent by the UN on practices in East Jerusalem, on practices in West Bank, on practices inside of Israel against Palestinians, practices for Gaza. The ICC has opened an investigation in 2021 because of our like Palestinians' continued effort to be recognized as a state within the United Nations. Now we became a member of the International Criminal Court in 2021, which is you know, three years ago. And based on that investigation, the UN went out <clears throat> and started doing the investigation and they finalized the report, you know, two, two months ago, like in August. Basically saying Israel is an apartheid state. Israel is doing a lot of horrible things to, to Palestinians. Human rights watches across the place, Betselem, Amnesty, United Nations Human Rights Watch, they all issue damning reports against Israel. So I would find that if the ICC does not step in and the U.S. government and the Israeli government gets tried for all this, they will. The trials are going to go on for a long time. But if, if somehow the people who are getting Bella Hadid fired and Elon Musk deleting tweets and you know, whoever changing their turn, their words, if they get to a point where they say no trials, no law, basically we are living in a world at that point. If they say Israel's not going to be investigated, we are not going to try them. Basically, we're going to live in a dangerous world. And that's that's what I don't think will happen because mm -hmm. there is laws to order. If you go to war, there are rules of war. There are rules of engagement. And once you start breaking all those and there is no accountability and a lot of children dead and a lot of people hurt and a lot of media complicit, the, the United States system is complicit from the media, from the politicians. If it wasn't for the few grassroots Democrats, <laughs> you know, Congress would have never talked about this issue up until the grassroots Democrats came to Congress. The Palestinian side of things was never covered in U.S. Congress. Mm -hmm. It was never even allowed to be talked on in the media. Mm -hmm. I mean, the first week of this genocide, I could not watch American news. It was horrible. It was It was it was disgusting to watch how one side was covered and another one was made, like you said, you know, human animals and 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 savages and this and that. Yeah, it was it was. I, th I think for anybody who is a human being with a heart to see what's happening, right, and to say things that were said. Yeah, it's hard. Here's, here's what I think should happen right now to kind of make this issue kind of like start going away or like head towards peace. Mm -hmm. But I want to hear your guys' reaction on this. But I think all the refugees of Gaza, the 1.7 million, 
will need to go and live in settlements inside of the West Bank that are currently occupied by illegal settlers. So from my perspective, if you really want to care about international law, all the settlements from in East Jerusalem, in Hebron, in Khalqilia, all over the West Bank within UN Resolution 242, if you take all the settlers out and move some of the Palestinians who lost their homes, lost their things, and you put them in those settlements, that's a step forward. Mm-hmm. That to me says there is the Israelis are willing to work towards peace and towards end, ending apartheid. But the current message is what we're seeing right now, and this is why it has to go to court, is we want to take over Gaza. They're they're cleaning the north, right? They're basically it's a big demolition job on in the north. So they're demolishing Gaza in the north, and once they're done, they're gonna start. They're gonna want to start demolishing the south. And where do the people go? Yeah. This is not. This is this is so bad. They've. I'm sorry, but this is day 38. They have been saying that, you know, all the terrorists are in the hospitals. It was like, I swear to God, today, just before this call, it was like watching comedy. I'm like, day 38, you've bombed more than two or three Hiroshima Nagasaki-style bombs on Gaza. You have four, oh, more than 400 pieces of machine, death machines in Gaza. And on day 38, you're st- like, first of all, day one, you say, I am going to the hospital. All the hostages meet me there. Like, it's not going to happen. Like, what? I mean, they went to all the hospitals. And, you know, after day 38, they sit, they show footage in a little room where they found some guns and cash in the basement of one of the hospitals. And that's their evidence for attacking the hospitals. There's a beautiful quote that I've been... It's not... Your job, as it was stated, was, you know, rescue the people. You're killing the people. You're killing the hostages that you're trying to, you know, save. (laughs) But it's... It's eradication. You're trying to eradicate people. This is the problem. You're trying to eradicate people. And if the court does not step in, this is a lost, this is a lost cause for, <laughs> for humanity in general in this world, for human rights in general in this world. Who, who's like, if they can't bring justice to this issue, how are they ever going to bring justice to the Ukraine issue, for example? Yeah. If that doesn't go to court, where real lawyers and impartial judges and real like law abiding, like no biases, you know, like we're getting down to the brass tacks of the law and who broke the law and who owes what, who, what, and all these things. And if we, if we're not able to get there and everybody accepts the facts without dropping nuclear bombs, 
I think there is a future for humanity. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think it's, I think that is the path for humanity. And even if Palestinians continue to be dehumanized and we're called savages and human animals long in the future. And who knows? I like the, the the Republicans tried a few times to kick all the Palestinians out of the US. They tried to write resolutions and stuff in US Congress. Who knows if we're gonna be demonized even more? I don't know. But what I knew know is that if our freedom is taken and everybody's looking at this issue and sees the bully walk, how are we gonna go to our children and raise children where we tell them that if you're special, you're, you, you're a special person, you get to do whatever you want to the other kids. Because you're my son or you're, you're my daughter and you have special things that make you this special person and you get to shit all over everybody. Is that the type of world in which we're going to accept? This is so informative and I'm so sorry that it's, it's an issue that's been going on for you know, for such a long time, and now it's just being brought up to the surface, and it's unfortunate that now everyone's becoming aware of it. Yeah, it's more than just 30, you know, 39 days. It's been going on for, for a long time. I feel like that it's horrible what's happening anywhere with anywhere, but hopefully, like you said, Hamam, that it's bringing awareness and and I think like you Ariel mentioned that we can change we're at the pivotal moment now where there's so much bad happening that I don't know if for you guys but sometimes for me it's like it's hard to have hope there's more hope than there has been before certainly I mean we've been to protests every single weekend since it started and I think we've been to protests in 2021 together mm-hmm. Or even before that, maybe in 2018. I don't know if we did that, but it was, they were small. It wasn't a lot of people, and it was mostly Palestinians and maybe a few Jewish people, very few Jewish people. I was probably one of the 10 that was there. And now, if we go to a protest, it's literally all walks of life. Like mm. people just jumping onto this thing, like standing up, like this is wrong. We cannot do this. We don't stand for this. And you're seeing all kinds of people. I mean, the biggest civil disobedience for American Jews to do that at Grand Central Station, that's amazing. Or even today, um, outside of the Israeli consulate in in Chicago, that's the biggest, the second biggest one. It's like each time doing something, a Statue of Liberty. So there's there's more Jewish people waking up, and I think it is going to take a lot of the American Jewish population to stand up and say that that, that it's wrong and that we understand. And I think that just comes from a lived experience similar to yeah. mine. The stories that are coming out are are really similar to my own of discovering what's what's happened to these people. Yeah. Um, we can't we can't let you know. Christian Zionism and Judea, you know, uh, Jewish Zionism and Islamic Zionism win and be the loudest in all the conversations. That's a beautiful story. And I can see, 
I can see the way you speak about your under, your country, how how proud you are to be from there, you know, because a lot of the times, and I don't know if you feel like that, you know, a lot of the times we leave a country for one reason or the, or the other, and we can become citizens of other countries, but in our hearts, any immigrant, you're always, especially, especially I feel like that first Uh, first generation. I don't. I, I came here when I and both of us came here. We weren't born here, so I don't even know if we consider first generation. We just immigrants that came here. It's just you always gonna be from you know from Palestine, from Ukraine, from you know South Africa, from anywhere. And I just wanted to tell you guys just to to see you know the platform that you have and you know for you Ariel that you share so much and teaching other you know your followers either that. Jewish people or non-Jewish people. I think when we share our stories and there's such a healing power in sharing stories and, and, you know, you too, it's like Jay said, you are the future that we all hope to have, you know, and, and, and you are the example of how two, two different people that society said should not be together. They should be fighting against each other but you got together and you have this beautiful love and, and everything. So I do believe that love is the answer to, to all this hate in the world. Well, we'll have you guys back to talk about the hopeful future that is coming. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I feel so much better just letting it all out. Good. <laughs> you just needed some therapy. I just needed some venting yeah thank you if, and even if it doesn't air i'm happy with oh it. no no it will air it's interesting to hear from somebody from the country you know because a lot of you know the news and social media and and all of that right which is great right because you get all these different opinions but i think to hear from somebody who is from there who grew up there who still have family there it's it's a it's a different take so we happy that you came and you share the story and um I yeah. can't tell you how grateful we are. I'm so happy. And it was so good talking with you guys. It's just, thank you for teaching me and teaching everyone. Ariel, you taught me I had no idea about anything going on in Gaza. She would, you know, show me about all this stuff going on in 2021. And then now here we are. And then I think, you know, she's spreading the word on social media. I have some Jewish friends. And it's just seeing them realize what's actually been going on and how... Um, Okay. I think it's important yeah. to have taboo conversations, have weird conversations. They're going to, they're going to go great or they're not. And you'll just go from there. <laughs> yeah. No, this was, this was great. You guys, thank you for the, for giving us time on Monday evening. Um, yeah. I know it was a long conversation, but it was a good one. So. And sharing your love story. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> It's my favorite. All right, guys. Have a good night. Yeah,